Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm an MBA candidate at the Wharton School and an MA candidate at the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Steve McLaughlin. He is the founder, CEO, and managing partner of FT Partners, which is the only investment banking firm focused exclusively on the fintech sector around the world. Steve launched FT Partners at the age of 32 and has been successfully leading it for almost 20 years. He's one of the undisputable leaders in the industry and is consistently ranked as one of the most influential people in fintech around the world. Steve holds an MBA from the Wharton School and a BSBA from Villanova University. And without further ado, please join me in my conversation with Steve McLaughlin. Great. Well, Steve, thank you for joining us at the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Sure thing. Well, thank you for having me. So real quick, so I was fortunate to go to Wharton, graduated in 1995, MBA school. Enjoyed my time there in Philly. I'm actually from Philly. And I was also fortunate to get a job at Goldman Sachs as a summer associate in their financial institutions group. And then was one of the few people that got a job full-time in the FIG group there at Goldman as well. So it was sort of the, the heyday of you know, financial services, M&A for banks, insurance companies, asset managers, and the like. And then you can imagine in the 1995 to 2002 when I was there, that was the uh, very pinnacle of the internet. And that touched financial services just like everybody, every, every other sector. And you know, that was where I spent my life. And then in 2002, went out and started up FT Partners as the only investment bank focused 100% on fintech at the time. And so in modern day here, we've been in business for 18 years and up to 160 people spread through three major offices in New York, San Francisco, and London. And we're excited to say we've got clients on six of the seven continents, haven't found any major fintech companies to do business with yet in Antarctica, but you know, great unicorn clients on every continent and you know, super busy, even in light of the coronavirus. We are uh, slammed as we speak. It's a good time. That's fascinating. And so what was it that drove your decision to, to leave Goldman Sachs and go on your own? Did you envision the, the industry becoming what it is today? You know, I was always, you know, envisioning, you know, all the problems that were going on with financial services being solved with technology. And I think fortunately, it's, it's worked out that way. And in the tech world, you know, most of the companies are smaller than what the big banks like Goldman Sachs focus on. And it's also a fairly complex space to focus on. So therefore, the large investment banks and even boutiques have a hard time covering it. If you're a large investment bank, you know, you really, so many groups and so many geographies and the space tends to get splintered. You know, you've got the online brokerage stuff covered by people that cover asset managers. You may have a financial data company covered by the people that cover data, but not necessarily financial data. And then you've got some payments companies covered by people that do IT services. And, you know, there just has not really been a cohesive group put together at any particular investment bank. And then the boutiques, a lot of them are just too small, 
you know, and, you know, I think what we've proven is, you know, we have 160 people focused on this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and, and you can still barely cover it, quite frankly. And so we don't have anywhere near 100% market share or anything like that, but we're perpetually busy. And, you know, one of the things I've been able to say for the last, you know, decade and a half is that, you know, focusing on super high quality execution and great client outcomes, you know, we haven't had to go pitch for any business in the last 10, 15 years. So we're trying to keep that up. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, the vision was very much the space was going to explode. And it, it, it really, really has. I mean, it's, it's not just post financial crisis when the word fintech became more popular and the space got more activity. I think the space was quite busy before, during and after the financial crisis when you know, fintech got a bit of a, a broader set of people focusing on it. So it's a great space. Absolutely. And then take us through the early days. What were some of your initial challenges when you started building, building your team and, and looking for, for clients? I think the biggest challenge early on was just credibility. You know, we were a brand new firm coming out of the, the depths of the dot-com bust. You know, I was only 32, 33 when I started the company. So I was pretty young and looked even younger. And but I had a lot of experience and I'd worked on a lot of transactions. And, you know, one of the things I was fortunate uh, at the very big bank is that a lot of the transactions, the senior people don't really work on. And I was allowed to sort of run my own deals, even as a 30, you know, young 30 year old banker. So I, I actually learned the business quite deeply having to fend for myself. And I think one of the things that was hard early on, like I said, in terms of credibility building was even hiring people was tough because you know, we were a small unknown firm in the depths of the market. The good news was it didn't take a lot of people to get it going. And so it was just myself. And really in the early days, it was a couple of interns and some full-time people, but it was a pretty small crew. But with that small crew, you know, we were able to get some outstanding results for our clients and then word spread. So you had to really build the credibility up. It wasn't enough to just sort of say, you know, I'd worked at Goldman Sachs or I knew how to do transactions. You had to actually prove it to the marketplace with some smaller mid-sized deals. And now we're working on things that are, you know, 10, 20 times the size of stuff we were working on in the early days. So um, credibility building was probably the hardest on all fronts in hiring and getting hired by clients, getting respect from buyers and VCs. Today, that's, that's something that we don't take for granted, but we've at least earned it over 18 years, hopefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, FT definitely is top of mind in the industry these days. And how about keeping your, your ear on the ground when it comes to the, the fintech landscape? How do, you, how do you do it today? And has that evolved over time? Sure. Well, you know, as we were just talking about, you know, we have 160 people. So, and, and we've got people on every continent, not in terms of offices, but in terms of clients. So we just had one of our MDs give a big speech over in Nigeria, you know, to a pretty big audience of fintech folks in Nigeria. We also, we have a 30 person internal research team, and this is not a research team that does sort of equity research. We're doing private company research. So we're looking at every single micro space across all of fintech. You know, so within fintech, there are, you know, call it 50,000 companies and probably you know, a thousand subsectors under six or seven or eight major sectors. So we've actually meticulously gone and looked at every single company in every single sector, actually put a valuation on each company based upon our proprietary data, proprietary sources, and we're constantly refining 
those valuations. We keep track of not just the valuations, but the growth of the company, the profitability, the number of employees, and you know, 10 or 20 other statistics. And then you know, we methodically go space by space and map them out and figure out who the winners and losers are. So you know, we're actually called on a lot by VCs behind the scenes when they're thinking about making a decision about investing in a company, even if we're not working on the deal on the buy side or the sell side, to give sort of a professional opinion of what we think of the company or the deal itself. So we give a lot of unofficial advice behind the scenes and have definitely helped a number of deals, many, many deals get done and many, many deals not get done actually. So we're you know, in constant communication through our research group, constant communication with a dedicated private capital markets team that we have as well that is spending their time speaking with basically 2,000 VCs a year when I say VCs, that includes private equities, private equity firms, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, teachers funds, and you name it, you know, private and wealthy individuals, et cetera. So, and that's uh, the largest dedicated fintech private capital markets team in the world. So if you think, think about our research team, it's out talking to companies every day, building up our research and publishing some of the best market maps and thoughts in the space. And you've got the VC world covered. And then you have you know 100 plus bankers running around working on tons of deals and every deal we're talking to, sometimes it's one buyer, but sometimes it's 30 or one VC or sometimes it's 50 that are buying to get in the deal. So it's just an amazing number of touch points that we have literally on a daily basis, probably talking to hundreds of different firms and VCs. And each one of them is just dying to tell us you know, what they're thinking, what they're talking about and who they're talking to and what's going on. So we have a voracious database with which we capture all this information in as well, which we're mining, keeping track of too. So, you know, we're not just quote unquote doing deals or, you know, shaking hands and playing golf. We're we're actually kind of a, a data and, and analytical and technology firm behind what we do. And that's something that, you know, just creates a massive gap between the the knowledge that we have versus everybody else in the space. And and that also includes tracking all the proprietary, completely non-public valuation and metric-driven information on a private company by private company basis. So not only do we actually do more deals than anybody in the world in fintech, and we have all of that proprietary information that we can use on a no-names basis, but we also actually track every possible deal in the space, which is actually pretty impossible for anybody to do unless you have a fully dedicated team doing it. And so we're the only team in the world that's been doing that for for years. So um, pretty interesting times. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing you talk to entrepreneurs close to close to founding the, the companies, right? So I'm guessing you want to build those relationships early on? Absolutely. And we have about 20 different seed stage funds that we spend a lot of time with. Uh, and I say seed and A stage funds where the companies themselves may be a little bit too early for us to do official investment banking work for because they may just be raising five or ten million dollars and and actually some of those companies we will take on if we really think the long-term prospects are great but you know firms like better tomorrow which has just been founded by a couple great guys or dan rosen's commerce ventures and many others and so we also spend time with the ribbit capitals of the world and and nike ventures and and point 72 so we're very, very well networked with all these different folks in the early stage. And, and, and they're doing the hard, hard work, which is finding the companies that are just literally being founded 
and, and, and sifting through those and putting money in them. And then we're spending a lot of time with those firms and then those founders. So we get a little bit of the cream of the crop. But the truth is we also get um, thousands of inbound calls from entrepreneurs, you know, who are just starting their businesses and they're looking to sort of say, you know, to see, you know, what kind of information can they get from us? You know, can we give them some advice? Can we point them in the direction of one of these VC funds or seed stage funds? And we often do. You know, we'll take a call from anybody, anywhere about anything. Uh, we always find the time to provide some free, helpful advice to entrepreneurs along the way. And it always has come back to, you know, to be a good thing long term for us as well. So um, trying to spread the spread the love in the ecosystem, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And, and what about the specific areas of the fintech landscape that you're most excited about? Are there, are there any that you're paying particular attention to? Yeah, there's, there's so many, actually. You know, we've been spending a lot of time lately in the insurtech space. You know, this is one of the sort of late bloomer spaces of all the key pillars of financial services that have been disrupted. And, you know, just in the last year, you know, we've represented a number of companies on pretty epic transactions. And, and I really think we're just in the first couple innings of the space. But for example, we sold a company called Assurance IQ to Prudential for three and a half billion dollars. And literally the company had only been formed, you know, three or three and a half years prior with no VC funding and completely under the radar. So really just a tremendous outcome for those guys. We just raised $200 million for a company called Next Insurance from Munich Re, just another spectacular entrepreneur building a company in the SMB insurance space. So just a, a lot of activity there. We love that space. It's a huge dedicated effort for us. You know, another area we're spending a lot of time in is the sort of what I would call the fraud solutions identity and authentication space around financial services and payments. We actually just sold a, a really amazing company called Emailage to LexisNexis, who's building a suite of companies and products and services around the fraud solution space. And yeah, we uh, on the, that was on the back of raising money for probably one of the best companies in the space, which is called Feedseye, who uh, is building a, a global enterprise-based business around payments and, uh, and the fraud space. So, you know, that space is just incredible. The amount of usage of data and analytics and AI and machine and deep learning that, you know, propels these companies to fight the uh, criminals out there that are trying to steal identities and create fake transactions, uh, which, you know, slows us all down. So and creates uh, massive amounts of fraud in the, in the world. So it's a constant, constant battle with the fraudsters and these uh, merchants and payment companies trying to battle that stuff. So we're proud to be supporting those companies in, in that fight. The other area I would say is a, is a huge focus of ours and something that's super exciting is the B2B payment space. So if you think about just a broad number of commercial payments there are out in the marketplace, it's probably one of the biggest untapped areas at the moment. You know, one of our favorite companies and, and clients, a company called Avid Exchange, they're helping the world eliminate paper checks and B2B payments. So I, guarantee you could throw a dart at a list of middle market companies and probably 95% of them are still, you know, have their CFO and accounts payable departments writing checks and Avid is helping to eliminate that. So that's a huge, huge area. There's another company called bill.com who just went public and now it's worth three, $4 billion plus and they're doing the same thing in the lower end of the market. So B2B payments tends to be a bit of the 
behind the scenes, you know, type of players that you don't hear about every day. It's another company you may not have heard of called Marqueta, M-A-R-Q-E-T-A, which is what they would call a, a modern card issuing platform. So uh, companies like Square who have the cash app and are issuing a cash card or a debit card against the cash app, you know, use Marqueta and people like DoorDash or Instacart where the drivers are using cards to pay for the food that gets delivered to your house. Those are all Marqueta cards, if you will. So huge sort of B2B payment enabler of backing all these other types of tech and non-tech companies. So, so B2B payments, fraud solutions are, are also two of our favorite spaces. And there's, there's many more as well out there. You've mentioned VCs. Do you think the VC investment levels will continue given that they've been reaching record highs? I think they will and they have to. I mean, not only has there been a massive amount of VC investing, but there's also been a massive amount of VCs raising new funds. And so you still have a ton of dry powder out there that really does need to get to work. I think people sometimes forget, you know, the VC business is a business at the end of the day. They're like a little factory that, you know, on the one hand is credibility, they raise capital, you know, they deploy that capital, then they need to get liquid on their investments, create a track record, and then they go do it again. And they have overlapping, multiple, multiple overlapping funds over the course of time, but they, they literally can't stop investing. They can lower their investment amounts, they can slow it down. They can decrease the valuations and hope the market does the same thing. But I think they got to keep investing. And so I do think there's going to be a lot of capital out there. I, I don't predict that it's going to be perfect. I mean, there's you know a lot of prediction that a lot of these VC funds are going to have poor results because they're maybe on the margin. Some of them are over their skis in terms of the competitive environment and the knowledge required to actually make investments that work out. So I think there's a view, there's a lot of micro funds out there that aren't going to make it. And, you know, there's a bit of a trend towards some of the larger funds that are sucking a lot of the air out of the room in terms of brands and capital and talent, quite frankly. And so they're getting more money to work and some of the better deals. So it's just a cycle of life. I mean, there's going to be winners and losers. And that's the other thing I'm saying these days is, you know, nobody should be surprised if you see a company got a business every now and then, or if a company does a down round or if there's a slowdown in the economy, that's, that's the world we live in. That's, that's why it's called venture capital. It's not T-bills. You know, there, there are going to be some wipeouts and things like that. And no one should think the sky is falling when that happens. I mean, that's just going to happen. So one thing I'm you know, excited to say is there's been a lot of disruption already of companies that haven't done well. I mean, you know, you look at the, whether it's Lending Club and On Deck Capital, which are great companies, but they were very, very highly valued and the value sort of plummeted over the course of time. But that didn't really discourage anyone in the broad fintech space. It shifted people's business models. It shifted where some of the capital went. But now you're seeing InsureTech do really well. You're seeing payments do really well, B2B payments, and, and lots and lots and lots of other spaces. So, so I, I still think we're in the very early stages of even fintech's evolution. So as many, you know, unicorns as there are, I'd say, you know, you look around and not many people's lives have been dramatically changed. I doubt that, that you or any of your classmates would say, you know, you have the perfect set of financial, financial products at your doorstep. You know exactly that you got the best rates on insurance or that your parents' retirement is perfect or that your savings plan is perfectly geared or that, you know, that, you know, stock trade you did was perfectly executed. I mean, you're, I think we're still eons away from 
you know, perfection. And because financial services are 100% digital, it's just an industry that lends itself to massive levels of innovation and efficiency over the course of time. You're not talking about producing Teslas or rockets or other physical products that you know, have some sort of physicality to them. I mean, all financial services is, 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 is digital products for the most part. So, so yeah, tons of, tons of innovation left. It's far, far from perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. And what about uh, as the industry evolves, how do you see FT Partners evolving into the future? It's a great question. I think we've done a pretty good job of making sure that, you know, we've gone from in the early days, we were probably mostly focused on the capital markets tech space. And then we moved into payments and alternative lending and insurance and the B2B payments and all these other spaces. And we moved from San Francisco, sort of Silicon Valley based, you know, mindset to an East Coast, New York based mindset, and then London with a global mindset. So now we're all over the globe. And so I think we've done a pretty good job of diversifying sectors, diversifying geographies, diversifying stages of deals. We're still extremely happy to work with early stage companies and work with them throughout their life cycle. And now we're working with, you know, $10 million companies and everything in between. So I think for us, the number one thing at this point is incredible levels of quality, incredible levels of outcomes for our clients and incredible NPS scores. We would much rather stay at 160 people and be extremely happy and fulfilled doing a great job for our clients. So for us, it's really not about growth in terms of people, it's a growth in terms of quality. And then what usually happens is if you do that right, the growth then comes. So everything we think about internally is just how do we make our clients insanely happy and how do, how do we deliver the best possible service? And that's something we say every single day. We just want a, a huge deal, actually, based upon work we did on a company with $20 million of revenue. And someday this will probably you know, be a, a fun thing to listen to if we get this deal done. But you know, the credibility you get, it, it, it's, it's so, so important. And we're still building it. And as they say, you're only as good as your last deal. We know that. And that's why we try to make all of our deals and all of our clients super happy. So for us, the evolution is just more about how do we innovate and be very, very different in terms of an investment bank and think of it as a way to add real value. And I would say the, the probably the one thing that we're starting to do that's very different is, is make more of a concerted effort to prove to the market that that we are adding sometimes billions of dollars of value on a deal by deal basis, sometimes hundreds of millions, but certainly in very, very high percentages of, of value add. And it's hard to sort of prove it, but as we can prove it more and more through the, just the consistency over the course of time, we're able to sort of convince clients, you know, to, to treat us a little bit differently as people that can actually add value as opposed to just be conducting a transaction. And that can really change our business model in terms of how we get compensated for the value we create versus just conducting a transaction. Absolutely. That makes sense. Great. Well, we usually, towards the end of the interview, we like to ask about uh, some of your hobbies. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you spend your time outside of FT Partners. Good question. Well, I certainly work a lot. And when I'm traveling... There's this never ending a number of things to do on the road. But no, I think these days I'm just trying to stay healthy, you know, get in the gym three, four, five times a week, eat healthy. And, you know, because it's such a client service business, it's hard to take two week vacations to try to do a lot of, you know, few day getaways here and there. Just got married 
last year. And so trying to spend a lot of time with, with the new wife and thinking about a family and stuff like that. So that's all very exciting, but yeah, love, love music, love concerts, love the outdoors and trying to give back as well. Spending a lot of time on charities here or there and yeah. And spend a lot of time with clients actually. It's, it's, it's been a business where met an incredible number of great people around the world and you know it's hard these days to tell the difference between your your best friends from high school and college and your best friends from you know the deals you worked on 15 years ago and people that are still hanging out with you 10 years later so you know just kind of being around people and having a good time sounds great well steve thank you for joining us at the wharton fintech podcast and we look forward to seeing you around campus yeah, well, thank you for doing this. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to the whole Wharton community for all the support you've given us over the years. And look forward to my big reunion coming up in 2020. So 25 years. <laughs> Good stuff.